Hello and welcome to this podcast from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is historian and Russianist Helen Rappaport. In Conspirator, Lenin in Exile, Helen tracks Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, the man history would come to know as Lenin, as he crisscrosses Europe during nearly two decades under dozens of different pseudonyms, always staying one step ahead of the secret police, waiting for the right moment to step onto the centre of the stage of world history. Helen presents a fascinating picture, not just of his ideas being forged, ideas which would go on to affect the lives of millions, but also the life of the man who elaborated them, his character, his relations with women, his health, and his daily routine. And by focusing on Lenin during these two decades, which have been comparatively neglected by previous writers, she sheds much new light on the making of a revolutionary. But the book is also absorbing for the pictures she paints of those around Lenin and the cities in which he lived in those increasingly feverish years before the revolution. The book opens in 1887 with a dramatic execution. I asked Helen to tell me more. Well, there is, of course, this very dramatic point in Lenin's young life. Some people make more of it than others, and I didn't want to overemphasize this as a great dramatic, cathartic moment, but there was this point where his young his older brother Alexander Ulyanov who was very much a romantic revolutionary in the old school tradition of the um, Narodnaya Volya movement that had assassinated Alexander II he was arrested for his complicity in a plot to bomb uh, blow up Alexander III and was in fact executed along with four others. Now, he could have pleaded for clemency, but he, in a way, he wanted to be a martyr to the cause. He wanted to sacrifice himself for the greater good, the revolution and the Russian people at large. So this was a very dramatic point in Lenin's life because the day his brother was actually executed, the family had no idea. And Lenin was actually sitting his exams in school and did very well and came home having acquitted himself well. And it was obviously a huge trauma to the family. And it perhaps steered Lenin in a more political direction than he might have gone. It's possible because he was so studious and clever and brilliant, he might have gone for a more orthodox career as um a university professor. But I suspect the roots of radicalism are already there. He was very well read. He was very inquisitive and questioning politically. And certainly Alexander's death in 1887, his hanging, was a major impetus. How difficult is it to capture the character of the, the young Lenin of, of that time? Well, it's not actually. I mean, there's lots of material. Um, what's so interesting about him is to capture it without becoming too biased, because there are aspects of his um, young personality that are absolutely infuriating, because he was so obsessive, so driven, such a monomaniac. Once he set his mind on revolution in Russia and ded dedicated himself to that cause, he does become rather one note. And everything in his life, the luxuries of music, ordinary almost Philistine enjoyments, theatre, cinema, are all excluded because he has to concentrate his energies on revolution. So it's hard not to be either annoyed or full of admiration by that. I certainly wasn't full of admiration in that sense, but I did come to admire the incredible energy and resolve with which he drove himself through 17 years of great adversity and difficulty. There were times when he and Nadia uh, were very short of money, in fact, so hard up they were living on boiled potatoes and porridge and not much more. 
So it was it was a fascinating way of looking at the formation of that personality and seeing the machinery driving him relentlessly towards 1917. So can we take a step back and can you tell us what the circumstances were which propelled him into exile in the first place? It was very clear by the time Lenin came, well, of course, it wasn't Lenin then, he was still Ulyanov, but when he came out of ex- internal exile in 1900, that to operate as a committed revolutionary in the Russian underground was in extremely risky. There were massive roundups going on all the time, huge number of agents and spies and double agents. The Russian secret police, the Okhrana, were everywhere. And he wanted to set up an underground newspaper to be the voice of the, the underground revolutionary movement to politicize the workers and work towards his goal. And the only way he could really do that without very quickly being arrested again was to to leave Russia and go into exile, as many had already done. Some of the founding fathers, Plikhanov, Axelrod, um, were already in Switzerland and had been for some time because they just could not operate within Russia. And the first city he went to was Munich. Why Munich? Well, Munich at the time seemed a good option because they had good contacts in the German socialist movement, which was very, very strong. And the the police at the time, when he first arrived there, weren't too stringent. There was also a very strong Russian community already of emigre students who were studying there because the Russian university system was so constrained, it was so limited, that many Russian students went went to Europe to study. So Munich, the quiet backwaters of Schwabing, which was a rather nice bucolic part of Munich, seemed a good option. And so he and Nadia went there. As, well, he went on ahead. She had to finish her term of ex- internal exile, joined him later. So he first went to Munich because there was a network there. And importantly, the German socialists had a printing press that they were willing to assist and allow them to use. How far was his thought developed at that stage? And to what extent was it? did it continue to develop during his exile? Well, he was working towards his own take on the way forward for Russia, but more particularly the Russian revolutionary movement. A lot of his thinking was geared very much to developing this, some would say, very elitist view that the Russian revolutionary movement had till now failed because it was too amorphous, too romantic, too undisciplined. And of course, I think the fundamental thing he was working towards was his major work, What is to be Done?, which was his take on how the revolutionary movement should change very dramatically, become a very closed, very tight-knit group of highly educated, highly politicised thinkers and activists and not a great amorphous mass of ill-disciplined underground activists because there's too much opportunity for infiltration by the secret police. So this is fundamentally the core of his thinking was this hardcore revolutionary elite to lead the workers forward to revolution because they would never do it themselves. They had to be led from the front. And of course, the fact of being in exile allowed himself, I suppose, to to, ab- to abstract himself from those daily realities of the Russian masses. Well, this is pre- precisely the conclusion I came to. I felt very much during all those years, that the longer he was outside Russia, the more and more he was theorizing about 
Russia, the people, the peasants, the workers, what was going to happen. It was all one great big abstraction. He couldn't actually think of the Russian people in real terms because fundamentally he didn't have any real personal knowledge of them. He'd spent a lot of time, you know, in exile, in jail, abroad. And when it came to it, the whole thing was very much in his head. It was all a very, a very cerebral concept and he was not a hands-on revolutionary. Lenin would never, ever have led from the barricades. He was the thinker of the revolution. And that's why he held back in Switzerland when the revolution broke in 1905, Bloody Sunday. And again, um, in 1917, you know, he let other people just go slightly ahead of him just to be sure uh, the, the way was clear for him. He was in many ways a physical coward, actually. He was always watching his back. You call the book Conspirator. Mm-hmm. And you say interesting things in the book about what conspiratia in Russian actually means and it's not it's not quite exactly the same as being a conspirator so can you say what because that sort of seemed to me to encapsulate a lot about his life in exile well conspiratia was Lenin's watchword in Russian the word conspiratia means more secrecy stealth than actual conspiracy but it it was the word he kept repeating over and over and over again in all these endless directives and missives and letters from abroad that there must be tighter conspiratia there must be greater secrecy there must be very carefully controlled closed cells small numbers of people utterly loyal to each other who often didn't know the names of people beyond their tight-knit cell this was the thing that obsessed Lenin wherever he went secrecy watching his back looking for double agents looking for traitors in a way one of the things I wanted to try and capture in that the use of that word conspiratia secrecy you know little men conspiring in back rooms in Geneva or wherever was something of this whole febrile world of the Russian Russian revolutionary abroad that Conrad I think captured so brilliantly in Under Western Eyes and also in The Secret Agent it was a very very fervent and um, querulous and insecure world of men literally sitting up all night smoking roll-ups and drinking too much tea and it all got very intense and uh, obsessional. When does it become apparent that Lenin sees himself as a leader rather than simply a, a contributor? He has the arrogance and the self-belief and the drive right from day one to be a, a leading voice in the move, revolutionary movement abroad, but it really becomes apparent during the 1902 three uh, period in London and the first big split in the party that becomes apparent at that congress that was held in London in secret in 1903 when you get the first sign of a split between Lenin's Bolsheviks and uh, Martos Mensheviks. Lenin from from then onwards from 1903 onwards through every single conference of the RSDLP powerhoused his way through hectoring and arguing and bullying for his point of view. He was no good at accepting compromises he would not listen to the other person's point of view it was a real matter of steamrolling his own beliefs through I think that is what it kept him going this sense that he had to do it he had to do it alone he couldn't trust or delegate to anyone else it was down to him to see it happen to make it happen tell me about the challenges of 
tracking his movements. He changed address so many times. He changed name. Tracking him down must have been one of the pleasures, but also the, the, the stumbling blocks of this project. Well, Lenin used something like 100 varying uh, aliases and variations of initials and names. And it wasn't till 1904 he really settled on the pseudonym Lenin, although he wasn't really effectively known very well abroad under that name until a bit later by 1907. But uh, within the movement, he often signed himself Ulyanov, and that was his real name. But when he arrived in London um, on a false passport, he appeared as this sort of German-sounding Dr. Richter. But he used endless aliases and different passports in his constant game of cat and mouse to keep off keep the Russian secret police at bay. I did have a fairly clear idea of which persona he was living under in which place. William Fry was another name that he used in Finland. So I had a pretty good idea of who I was looking for in each country when I got there. And you mentioned um, Finland and Poland earlier as places where you were particularly looking for, for traces of him. What kind of things did you discover? I felt that the only way I could tell those two parts of the story was actually go there on the ground and seek learning out because there wasn't really enough in the sources and I, I didn't have the languages. So I was very, very fortunate in the case of Finland. I contacted the, the, the only surviving Lenin Museum in the world, i.e. full-time Lenin Museum, which is a little museum in Tampere in Finland. Incredibly kind and helpful staff there who I contacted and said, look, I want to come over and trace Lenin's escape out of Finland that this is about the most dramatic thing that happened during his exile he actually did have to get out quick at Christmas 1907 out of Finland and he did it by um, going down the southwest archipelago this little succession of tiny islands and scaries now I wanted to follow that journey but I thought how on earth am I going to do it with no finish there's no public transport can't do it on a bicycle I wouldn't feel very safe and so I, I sort of threw myself on the mercy of the Lenin Museum, who were incredibly kind. I asked their advice, and they said, no problem, we'll take you. We will drive you. So the director of the Lenin Museum and his colleague drove me all the way down the southwest peninsula, and I saw the places where Lenin stopped off. And I got a very strong visual sense, particularly of the Ofsjärden Sound, which is this enormous stretch of water two miles across that Lenin crossed at dead of night when it was frozen solid, and he crossed it on the ice and nearly fell in. It's a very dramatic moment in his story. So that was a wonderful way of reliving the story that I could never have written. So I couldn't have written that in the same way if I hadn't been there. Because the awful thing is, the Soviet hagiographers, as always, minimise the role of all and any foreign nationals in looking after Lenin in exile. So the Finns get an odd mention, but they don't get credit where due. I mean, without them, I'm quite certain that Lenin would have been caught by the Okhrana in 1907. And, you know, history might have been quite different. The other group of people whom you mention as as not getting their due are women, the women in the history of the, the Bolshevik movement. Their role has been downplayed, hasn't it? Well, I wouldn't even say it's been downplayed. It's just been ignored. And the trouble is these women were so loyal, so dedicated, so self-effacing that very little of their story has come through to us. I was very glad in the book to be able to at least tell the story of one or two of them, women like Fyodosia Turabkina in St. Petersburg, who would go around with 
parts of rifles disassembled under her dress or smuggling bombs under her clothes, taking her three-year-old daughter with her as cover. These women took enormous risks. And of course, the women in Lenin's immediate family, Nadia, was an incredibly dedicated worker in the Russian underground and had tabs on all the underground workers across Europe, took enormous risks. Inessa Armand, who did have an affair with Lenin, went back and forth into Russia on Lenin's behalf, you know, and got arrested and spent time in jail. The only women really who've had any mention are Nadia and Inessa, but there are an awful lot of other women, and it was only going back into St. Petersburg, into the museum there, that I found some evidence on them, which I managed to bring back in Russian and use in the book. You you say in the preface that perhaps Lenin isn't a natural choice for someone like you, a woman, yeah. uh, a feminist. I mean, what was it like spending so much time with this man? I mean, he's a very difficult man, A, to get to know and B, to like, I would imagine. Well, you see, it was a wonderful challenge because what I wanted to know about Lenin was the complete obverse. I did, you know, people have complained there's not enough politics in the book. I set out deliberately not to write a political book. I wanted, in a way, to write the domestic life of Lenin. I wanted to know what he ate, where he lived, what kind of rooms, what kind of habitation did he and Nadia have? How did they get on living in close confinement, actually, for a lot of that time, with her mother? Mother-in-law trailed round Europe with them. How did they get on with this, these very incestuous revolutionary circles abroad? As I've said earlier, Lenin quarreled with almost everyone. It was a very different life, you know, and uh, I wanted to understand that because the standard books on Lenin don't really talk about his personal life very much at all. I wanted to know more about Nadia. How did she cope with living with a monomaniac? It was fascinating because I very quickly discovered that she totally suppressed her own needs and also neglected her own health quite considerably. She was very unwell. She had quite a serious thyroid condition that went undiagnosed and untreated for a long time. So these were the things I thought, this is the only opportunity in a way by writing about Lenin, I can say something about the women who contributed to his well-being in exile, his safety his security, because one thing I am absolutely convinced of is without Nadia, he would have driven himself to such complete physical and mental collapse, he might never have reached 1917. Mm. So the women, although in themselves are not key players, they're not key players, they are crucial because of the fantastically important emotional and physical a practical backup that they gave him during ex those long years in exile. Maybe I can ask you, Helen, in conclusion, is there one particular glimpse of Lenin that you're particularly proud of having pinned to the page? Oh, his arrest in Poland in 1914. Actually, nothing has been said about that. And I think the ultimate joy of that was to really recover a completely lost part of the story, which was that when he... When he was arrested in 1914 in this tiny village called Biały Dunajec, the local Polish socialists, but also the local respectable Jewish citizens of Galicia, precisely the same Jews who disappeared in the Holocaust, all got together and petitioned for his release as a good and decent, honest man. And when they, you know, Lenin was let out of jail, he came very close to being taken out and shot. He went back to gather his belongings and had no money to get on the train 
out of Galicia with his wife and his mother-in-law, and he went back to the local Jewish shopkeeper, Mendel Singer, who'd been one of the honourable citizens who'd come to his defence, and borrowed the money to get out of Poland. And some time later, a year or so later, Lenin returned the money with his thanks. And I managed to get in touch with someone, it's a long story, but with someone in America who was related to that Jewish shopkeeper. And she had a photograph of him and his family, including her great uncle, who had sat on Lenin's knee when he visited the shop. And I thought, oh, well, it doesn't get better than that. You know, this is a real little tiny part of the jigsaw, but it's a part of lost history. Helen Rappaport. Conspirator, Lenin in Exile, is out now in paperback. You can find full details about the book, plus several million more, by going to the Blackwell Online website at blackwell.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Blackwell Podcast, so thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye.